You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Good morning from the newsroom at the South China Morning Post, and welcome to our first subscriber exclusive event of 2023. My name is Adrian Lee, and I'm the Senior Vice President of Audience Growth, overseeing the digital subscription experience for our readers. Our readers remain at the center of everything we do at The Post, and the purpose of this series is to open up the newsroom to you, our most loyal readers, and to give you an opportunity to get closer to our journalists. I'll be moderating the discussion today as we dive into where the Asian world is headed in 2023. Last year was equal parts momentous and turbulent, and as a result, we asked subscribers to tell us their bold predictions for 2023, as well as offering the chance to ask our journalists any burning questions in relation to the year ahead. Today's session will also be recorded and convert into a podcast, which you can find on scmp.com slash podcasts. With that said, joining me today are Eugene Tang, the South China Morning Post business editor, and Bhavan Jai Pragas, our Asia editor, both of whom will be replying to your questions and sharing their own thoughts and opinions on what's to come for the region. As usual, we have a wealth of questions pre-submitted by subscribers that we'll do our best to answer in the time that we have. So with that said, welcome Eugene and Bhavan. Uh, Guys, any news resolutions this year? I'd said that I would uh, I'd try and read a little bit more. Eugene, yourself? My New Year's resolution is to be prepared. We've seen in the last three years, we thought we were prepared for COVID because of what happened uh, during SARS in 2003. As it turned out, we were completely unprepared. So hence the last three years. So my New Year's resolution is to be prepared and to learn to cherish what we have. Excellent. Bhavan, yourself? I think mine is to not to not be too bogged down by the news. Uh, we, as Eugene said, we should expect the unexpected. You know, uh, the, the the stream of of, of uh, gloomy uh, news is probably going to continue in twenty twenty three. So, but but I, I think you should not let that. Uh, 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 we should not be overcome by those things. Yeah. Okay. Great. Let's go to our first question. Uh, I think it's a question that a number of our uh, subscribers wrote in about, asking about how how we feel the war in Ukraine is going to be playing out this year. Um, what might be the continued impacts on Asia politically uh, and economically? Um, there were more than one subscriber who felt that the war in Ukraine would actually uh, be over in 2023. Um, Eugene, let's start with you from uh, the economic side. Well, the war will enter its first anniversary by the 24th of February, right? So it's one year since uh, Putin ordered the uh, Russian army into Ukraine. Its implications will uh, remain. Um, I'm not sure that it will be over in 2023. I wouldn't be so bold as to make that prediction. Um, but a lot of the aftermath on energy prices, on global food supply, and probably less known to a lot of people on air travel is going to be continue to be felt, at least in the first six months of 2023. I think the first six months will continue to be very turbulent and very volatile. So um, Western sanctions will continue to, to bite and have their implications felt. Uh, food supply will continue to be short. Um, and uh, air travel. Now, a lot of uh, transcontinental flights between Asia and Europe and North America fly through Russian airspace, through Europe. With the war going on in uh, Central Asia, in that part of the world, um, it forces global airlines to seek a new route. New route means more time, means more fuel, more cost. Um, so that has knock-on effects on you know, air travel, business travel, effort. So uh, all that eventually will feed into prices for consumers. So I think um, in a nutshell, the first six months, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Um, will there be some kind of um, momentous decision made on the Russian side uh, with the, when the war enters its, uh, its uh, first anniversary? As far as we know, it's a hugely unpopular war within Russia. So what happens in Russia um, among the population is, remains to be seen. So, yeah, probably at this stage, I, I'll be hesitant to make um, too optimistic uh, a prediction. Okay. Bhavan, from your perspective? I think the signs are that uh, the situation and the battle 
feel you know it's going to, to, to worsen i mean uh, i mean that's that those are the indications that we are getting right now the western powers are now preparing to send in uh, tanks you know we've seen the british uh, promised their challenger 2 tanks this weekend the germans are uh, under pressure to supply leopard tanks other western powers also uh, looking to, to 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 add to the firepower for the ukrainians on the ground the russians are not going to be sitting back uh, Ukrainian intelligence say that you know they're going to add two million conscripts. Whether or not the war is pop is popular, you know uh, th those numbers are going to come to the front line. So it, it could get more ugly. Uh, I think for Asia, the implications will be on countries like uh, Indonesia and India uh, that uh, Russia has primarily depended on for for diplomatic cachet. They say that the global south, uh, they, they, they they continue to have considerable support. Uh, in the global south, uh, even though the West has abandoned them. Uh, these countries have not supplied arms or have not aided the war effort in any way, but they've just taken a neutral position. But it may be the case that, uh, you know, if the war continues and escalates, uh, these countries will then have to, will be put uh, under pressure to, to take, a, to take a, a firmer position. And, and, and that might not be good for, for Asian security. I see. So potentially you have to choose a side if this continues as, Indeed, it, uh, yes. as it looks like. Yeah. Interesting. Um, let's move away from uh, from war, but uh, still to um, uh, geopolitical tensions. Um, Bavan, we saw, um, I think, at the beginning of 2022, there was a lot of talk about the political decoupling between US and China. Um, is it safe to say that maybe uh, tensions aren't quite as high as they used to be? Might that look towards um, potentially some a more stable Asia in 2023. I think you know we have we have seen this uh, escalate through the, the the Trump years, and in, in, as President Biden came to power, you know that that that, that uh, escalation of tensions has remained. But at the same time, you know, given some of the things that we have seen, the the the, the C Biden talks last year, there has been some cooling of uh, temperatures between the superpowers. Uh, Within Asia, I think it's important not to color the entire security situation uh, just based on, on, on the US-China rivalry because uh, even though it, it, it looms large in a lot of the actions of the government, South China Sea, for example, uh, and other, other uh, hotspots, you know, people are looking at things from the perspective of the US-China rivalry, but at the same time, there are also internecine rivalries between countries uh, and uh, and 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 uh, things that are not quite linked to the U.S.-China uh, rivalry, for example, Myanmar, uh, we, we will need to see uh, some sub substantial uh, change in the situation on the ground, and you know it could have far-reaching implications for the rest of the region. So, yes, the U.S.-China uh, relationship will matter in, uh, in determining uh, the cause of, of of stability in the region this year. Uh, but at the same time, there will be several other factors that need to be looked out for. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to, to Myanmar uh, in particular, um, because a, a couple of our readers have asked about that. Um, if, if we look um, towards, uh, obviously China is reopening uh, at this point, uh, what are the potential implications of that on US-China relationship as well? My sense is that the U.S. Uh, or just policymakers in the U.S. Uh, will have to grapple with the reality that a lot of Asian countries, uh, have, and they have been emphasizing this for years now, right? Do not make us choose a side. And you will again see this re-emphasized this year as countries welcome uh, investments, welcome tourists, because, you know, no... Uh, in the U.S., there's in some parts of their their intelligence, there's some delusion that you know uh, the, the, the countries uh, are reluctantly accepting Chinese tourists or Chinese investment. That's clearly not the case. You know, these governments, the businesses have agency, and you know, they warmly welcome uh, Chinese uh, investments and and, and uh, uh, tourism arrivals. Uh, so I think. The, Hopefully, uh, you know, as, as China reopens and the West and the U.S. sees uh, just how warmly and without coercion Asia 
welcomes uh, the reopening of China. I think I, I hope it it, it 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 gives the West uh, the, the dose of reality that it needs. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, Eugene, uh, turning uh, to some of the macroeconomic questions, um, I think uh, a lot of people are expecting twenty twenty three a recession is likely to to land. Um, is it likely that Asia might be an exception, or is uh, recession and stagflation inevitable, really, for uh, for all regions? Well, some uh, economies in Asia are already in recession. Uh, Hong Kong is already in was in recession in 2022. I think I believe South Korea had a contraction in one of the recent quarters. Um, Japan is barely going to be growing in 2023. Uh, South Korea will also barely be growing the economy. Um, so 2023 will be a bit of a mixed year for Asia. If I take the Asia Development Bank's um, uh, outlook supplement, and they tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side of the figures, they are predicting um, developing Asia to grow by 4.6% in uh, 2023. That's a little bit faster than in 2022. Developing Asia, excluding China, is going to grow 5%, a little bit slower than the 5.4% in 2022. So in other words, China is going to be the main determining factor of how the rest of Asia uh, performs this year. Now, like I said, um, Japan and South Korea are probably going to be barely growing uh, at all in 2023, maybe less than uh, 1%. China is expected to grow uh, probably somewhere at about 4.3% uh, this year, faster than last year. And as we've seen in the numbers that just flashed on Sacha Munko's a few minutes ago, fourth quarter came in at 2.9%. That's the slowest growth pace in 50 years. China has been opening up for 40 plus years, and this is the slowest growth pace in recorded history uh, in terms of uh, economic data. So um, what happens to China in the next few years, This uh, sorry, next few months this year, will, be, will have tremendous implication on the rest of Asia. Southeast Asia are um, going to be uh, faring better um, because of a lot of the outflow of um, uh, investments, inflow of investments into Southeast Asia because uh, China was closed off for three years. Um, but Southeast Asian economies are facing a lot of inflation. Singapore, Thailand, Philippines all facing high inflation. Um, and how the central banks react to tamp down on the inflation will have implication on consumption, on uh, the way the economies grow. So overall, this is going to be a turbulent uh, year, at least for the first six months. I think it will be very uh, interesting to see what happens uh, in the first six months. The US Federal Reserve, as we know, has been raising interest rates. So the era of uh, cheap money, high liquidity, that has, that has just stopped, right? So we're in an era of high interest rates. Hong Kong, of course, is tied to the US in terms of monetary policy. So when the US raises interest rates, we raise interest rates here in Hong Kong. Um, the next move is going to be on February the 2nd, when we come back from Lunar New Year holidays. The Fed will raise interest rates, but by how much? Is it going to be 25 basis points, as is what everybody is uh, expecting? Or is it going to be 75 basis points uh, like last year? So if it is 25 basis point as per expectation, then that signals that the pace uh, or the force by which the federal government is tightening monetary policy is loosening a little bit. So that would be a good signal um, for the rest of the for the rest of the region, for the rest of the economy, and certainly good for Hong Kong. But that doesn't mean that the price of money is coming down. It's still going to be high. It's just that it's growing at a slower pace. Um, it will, so the cost of money will still be high. Uh, will still remain with us for quite some time. Um, and I think li linked to this, um, one of our subscribers, um, Peter, um, has asked uh, which country or countries in Asia do you predict will have the highest and lowest uh, growth rates of GDP uh, this year? Um, there was one bold prediction from a subscriber uh, that um, the average Asian regional growth rate would be 5%, and obviously China's contribution is likely to be significant with its reopening. Um, who do you think is going to be in the hot seat? Well, according to the ADB's uh, number, developing Asia, like I said, 4.6%, including China, uh, excluding China, 5% uh, in 2023. So based on last year's uh, numbers, um, India and Vietnam were the 
uh, biggest, fastest growing economies uh, across Asia. And that momentum will probably continue this year. Uh, India and uh, uh, Vietnam will continue to lead the region in terms of growth. Okay. Um, Bhavan, talking about India, um, India, I think, has just overtaken China as the most populous country in the world. Um, is, does that mean that we're potentially going to be seeing India overtake China in terms of political power anytime soon or economic development? Um, are we likely to see India uh, become even more of an Asia leader than it already is? I think we have to put things in perspective. The economy is still one-sixth. India's economy is still one-sixth of China's. Uh, India is not... a uh, permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, so it, it is a rising and very potent Asian power, but it's not quite a superpower like China. Uh, they have ambitions. They need to, to, to ramp up and, and utilize their, their rising, their, their large uh, uh, ranks of, of young people who are, who, who, who are ambitious and want, want jobs that pay well. They have one of the biggest pools of, of, of technology talent that the world is, is, is clamoring for. So there are a lot of opportunities for India to tap on. Uh, but I, I don't think that, uh, within India there is, there is the, the sentiment that, that, that uh, they are now in a, in a, in a one-to-one competition with, with, with China. Uh, they have internal issues to deal with. Uh, there's rising ethno-nationalism. Uh, that they, you know, that 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 is a is an internal risk uh, about the BJP, the ruling party. Uh, it has brought stability to the country, but at what cost? Uh, you know, we have seen all these stories about violence against Muslims, uh, and those things are not going to go away, even as the economy continues to you know to grow at a, at a fast pace. Uh, so it, it will it will be as as Kurt Campbell, the U.S. Uh, point man for Asia, said a few days ago that you know India will be the focus of American uh, diplomacy in Asia. It will be uh, a focus of a lot of countries' diplomacy this year, <clears throat> but that does not mean that you know there's it's all upside. There, there are some risks there for India, and in my view, particularly in in their domestic situation, they are going to elections next year. Uh, we might see some of this harsh rhetoric uh, get worse. I see. So in, in your view, you think that India may be looking at more of its domestic matters first rather than necessarily... Yes, as, as, as they, 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 they inch closer to next the, the elections next year, uh, there are some state assembly elections this year, uh, uh, that tension between uh, what has long been seen as the intrinsic pluralism of India versus the BJP's vision of a Hindu nation, right, uh, where the Muslims and other minorities are only a tangential part of the nation. That tension is going to, I think, be, be, be further highlighted uh, in the coming months. And they will have to get that right. Uh, even if the BJP are, are, are very uh, uh, competent economic stewards, and they will have to get this part of governance right. Eugene, um, turning our attention to uh, Southeast Asia somewhat, um, KY asks, um, is there any evidence that supply chains uh, have successfully reshuffled from China to Southeast Asia and India in 2022? And if not, do you foresee any success in this, uh, I guess, power reshuffle in 2023? Uh, Yes, principally, I think um, in the, well, let me let me let me answer this in a in a long and um, roundabout way. Um, there are different types of supply chains, right? On one hand, on a very simple side, you can be running a cha chan tank, and it's a fairly simple supply chain. You get your vegetables and your meat from your vendors. You rent a place. You maybe hire a, a waiter and a and a and a cashier, and you operate it. Somewhere in the middle, you'll be manufacturing something. Uh, clothing, footwear, sh- uh, shoes, whatever. And then you've got electronics. Then you've got higher up the chain, you've got cars. Um, in a car, there are 2,000 parts. If you break everything down to every nut and bolt, there are probably about 30,000 parts. So obviously you need a lot of suppliers and a very long supply chain to manufacture a car. And right up to the end of the scale is commercial aircraft. Millions of parts. Very, very long, very, very complicated supply chain. So 
if you want to move your Cha Chang Teng from, say, Causeway Bay to Yunlong, you can do it tomorrow. You spend a few days, find a new, you know, new, new, new address, get your supplies, hire a new waiter, hire a new cashier, and up, up, you you're up and running. If you want to move your shoe factory from Guangzhou to Vietnam, it will take you a while. You need to find a factory. You need to build a factory. You need to hire workers. You need to get all your material, etc., etc. It will take a couple of years. If you want to move your electronics or car manufacturing plant from somewhere in China, elsewhere, it's going to be even more complicated because the supply chain is longer, etc., etc. So, in other words, the longer your supply chain, the more complicated it is, the longer it takes for you to move. Moving a supply chain is not an overnight thing. You don't just up and go and up, you know, unless you have a global footprint where you have facilities, you are one of those companies like Foxconn where you have uh, factories in every part of the world, then you can easily adjust from this to that. But even then, it will take time. So we did a story this uh, recent Saturday about um, Apple supply chain. We talk about the manufacturing of uh, Apple iPad um, from China to Vietnam. It took uh, Foxconn about two years plus of planning to, from the time they wanted to uh, move the supply chain to actually executing it, it takes about two years for them to do so. Um, and uh, India, interestingly, uh, while we're mentioning the rise of India, is going to be producing a lot of iPhones. So for the first time ever, Apple is going to make iPhones in India in the same calendar year of release as they do elsewhere in the world. So in the past, India makes iPhones that are several models behind the mm -hmm. release. Right. So backdated models, like iPhone SE, right, as opposed to iPhone 14. So starting from this year, um, India will make iPhones the same calendar year as the, the global release. Mm -hmm. So up-to-date latest models. Right now, India makes up about roughly 5% of Apple's global iPhone supply. By 2027, they aim to raise that proportion to half. So one of every two iPhone in the world, most of which are now currently made in China, is going to be made in India by 2027. So that's a tremendous shift of supply chain. So to answer to KY's uh, question, there, that is evidence of a shift, right? But it takes time. Right. This is 2023, and Apple is not going to make that happen until 2027. So, in fact, the shift of supply chains have been something that has been going on for ten, more than 10 years out of China for several reasons. Uh, rising costs and the shortage of labor in China has compelled a lot of um, manufacturing operations to shift out of China into places where labor is more abundant. Southeast Asia, some places in Africa, uh, India as well, as well. but um, people who shift those supply chains have to be have to shift them to a place where it's not too far away from your marketplace. So it depends where you want to ultimately sell your product. If you want to sell your product to consumers in China, say, and there's still 1.4 billion people mm -hmm. there, um, would you move them move your operation to Africa? Maybe depending on what the good is, right, or the product is. If it only costs you so much to 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 make, and then you're gonna to sell, and then you're gonna pay so much in terms of relocation and transportation, it's not worth it. Um, another reason that that caused the shift of supply chain is the increasingly tougher environmental standards and emission standards in China. So some of the lower end, more polluting industries like your, I don't know, leather tanneries, your um, textile dyeing businesses, uh, some of the metal metal extrusions or whatever have have had moved out of China because of, of tougher environmental uh, laws. Then, of course, there is uh, Donald Trump and his trade war. He slapped tariff on everything that was made in China. So if you are a manufacturer in China and you're selling and the U.S. being one of your biggest markets and you have to move your stuff out of China to avoid those tariffs, so over the past few years, there have been uh, increasing movement of some of these industries out of China. And what happened with, with, with uh, COVID, uh, it, it was, that was a big shock to the entire supply chain system because you find that once you have, you might have a factory 
in a, one part of China making a tiny little component. And if that production becomes disrupted, you disrupt the entire supply chain. So in, in manufacturing, there's a famous saying, it takes 30,000 parts to make a car, but it takes just one part to not make a car, right? You, you might be just missing that vital screw that only that factory can make. And if you lose that screw, you can't make that product. So, um, so the, what, the, what the past three years has happened is that um, uh, people are replacing the just-in-time supply chain with a new, new paradigm of thinking, which is just-in-case supply chain. So you have a plan A, you need a plan B and a plan C. So if, a, if another pandemic comes, if another lockdown comes, uh, how are you going to deal with the supply chain? So yes, uh, to cut it short, there's been a gradual move um, among different industries um, out of China. Um, if we look at supply chain and its, uh, it, I guess you call it cousin logistics, um, obviously the cost of uh, running operations in both those industries has, uh, has gone through a ceiling during COVID. Um, the hope was that maybe costs would come down and there'd be some rebound if things did reopen, we didn't have that. But do you think that's likely to happen or are we going to, in, in a new normal, like many things, and those are now likely to be the costs that we're going to, that organizations are going to have to be stuck with uh, moving forward? It'll take time. It'll take time to work out because uh, don't, don't, don't forget the disruption uh, was about two to three years long. So in, the, in that period, a lot of people have changed jobs, right? Um, when people change jobs, it's going to take time for them to come back to the, to, to, to the, to the, to the job market. Um, so you might have the same vacancies, you might have the same need in terms of talent, but that talent supply wouldn't be there. Um, and it will take time for you know, fresh graduates, fresh te technicians to be trained, fresh people to enter the workforce. So it will take time for this to, to, to play itself out. Um, eventually, over the longer term, term um, as uh, the labor market um, sort of recalibrates itself to meet with the, with, with the demand, costs will come down. And as technology improves, as automation and all kinds of new technology replaces some of these um, menial labor, costs will come down. But it will take time. Okay. It will take a number of years. We hope you're enjoying this subscriber-only event that we've made available to all our listeners. If you want to access more exclusive events that we create around comments and questions from SCMP subscribers, visit us online at subscribe.scmp.com and enter the code PODCAST at the checkout page you'll receive a very special offer of 25% off our annual and two-year plans. And now, back to the podcast. Bhavan, Eugene spoke a little bit about um, the tariffs uh, between U.S. and China. Um, how might Southeast Asia and South Asia generally walk the line between what's going on in China and the U.S.? Um, is there any what role does Southeast Asia play in that, that kind of vein of conversation? I think what we have seen are countries getting involved in this amalgamation of trade packs uh, and in, in, in doing so they are hedging. Uh, for example, countries are part of the CPTPP and the RCEP and you know uh, and, and some of these countries are, have, have uh, quite consciously decided that they will be part of as many of these of these trade packs as possible. Some of them are, are, are smaller plurilateral initiatives, uh, Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, among some of the countries that are part of a digital economy partnership agreement. Uh, so we will see countries, uh, I think, not working in, in, in the, in the uh, within the, the traditional uh, groupings, uh, APEC or ASEAN, you know, they, they, we might see countries uh, forming new groups uh, for, for niche issues for as, as this uh, digital economic partnership agreement is between, you know, the, the four countries I mentioned. Uh, and we will, you know, they, they will have to find innovative ways uh, uh, when it comes to trade packs to, to, to uh, negotiate the, 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 the larger trade friction that, uh, you know they have very little agency to 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 uh, 
change costs. Mm -hmm. yeah. a, a number of our subscribers um, wanted to know what the potential future for ASEAN might be. Uh, you've spoken about you know, organized, uh, uh, Asian countries banding together. ASEAN obviously already exists. Do you think it could be expanded, uh, potentially to include some new member states? Um, or would it potentially exercise some stronger power um, at, a, at a global level? I, I find myself saying this every year, but I you know ASEAN is again at a crossroads. Uh, of course, last year they they admitted uh, East Timor. They they agreed to admit East Timor. There's a roadmap for East Timor to to soon be a, the eleventh member of ASEAN. But uh, I have to go back to Myanmar, you know, and, because that is at the center of the future of of ASEAN. If they do not get this right yeah the, the ASEAN is one of the, the ASEAN 10 if they do not get it right they do not bring Minong Lang the senior general back to the negotiation table to, to you know to bring peace to the country uh, to, to end the civil war which you know it has kind of ebbed away from the from the news agenda but it is it is going on in the rural areas the, the military and the government do not have control of 100% of the country and that is uh, uh, not to be hyperbolic, but it is somewhat a, a Ukraine situation at our doorstep, you know, without the heavy armory arms, because the superpowers are not quite as involved now. Uh, but we don't want want it to be to, to get there, and uh, you don't want a, 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 a massive re refugee situation, you know. To 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 uh, affect the region, and these are these are this is at the core of what ASEAN has to grapple with. But the problem is, it is bifurcated between uh, the maritime Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, the Philippines, who have a firmer position on on how to deal with in Myanmar, as opposed to the the Indo Chinese countries, which have taken a you know, a, a, a stand back approach because they are thinking is if we agree to intervene, you know, and breach the ASEAN principle of non-interference, then what happens if there's turmoil on our turf? We don't want to be, we don't want outside interference. So there is that question that the, the region has to, has to grapple with. Uh, a lot uh, will hinge on Indonesia, which is ASEAN's chair this year. Uh, President Joko Widodo did a very good job as chair of G20 last year. You know, he did his best to 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 bring the Ukraine question into uh, conversations. Uh, this year, I think his challenge will be to use his chairmanship along with his foreign minister Retno Masudi uh, to tackle the Myanmar question and also, you know, uh, look at what they can do to to strengthen ASEAN. Uh, Solidarity in the longer term, in terms of how they make decisions, they should the 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 block really should think about moving away from the principle that decisions must be made unanimously. You know, there there should be a way to to conclude that you know a majority decision is enough mm -hmm. when moving on on big, big issues. Uh, um, one of our subscribers um, uh, theorized that the Myanmar situation would actually stabilize uh, in 2023. Um, but I think that potentially relies on um, uh, the military government um, engaging ex externally. Having they, they have shown they have shown no interest in engaging, uh, completely in transition, no interest in implementing the five point consensus that they themselves agreed to uh, in April of 2021, three months after they staged this absolutely illegal coup, uh, uh, and you know what they have done. In, in 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 the in the two years after you know it's it's quite egregious they have hanged uh, uh, democracy activists Aung San Suu Kyi remains behind bars we there are a, a whole lot of criticism about Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy but this is is is, is unacceptable and uh, the problem for Myanmar is that you know in the grand scheme of geopolitics where they stand geographically doesn't really mean uh, so much to the big powers and hence it is not on top of the world agenda. It was at a, at a point of time, uh, uh, you know, in 20, just after the, after the coup, uh, it, it, it was being talked about quite a lot. But now the risk for Myanmar and for the, for the shadow government uh, is that uh, 
fewer and fewer people are talking about about their, about their their plight, and and in the, the 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 challenge will be to emphasize that this is a key security problem for the region. You know, it is a regional problem. So highly important, but also sounds like something pretty significant needs to change in order to for there to be change in, in yes. Myanmar itself. Um, okay, let's uh, let's turn our attention to uh, to our home city in Hong Kong. Um, Eugene, with uh, hopefully the pandemic canal being classed as uh, endemic uh, and uh, looking at, you know, potentially the, there is uh, always, it seems, a threat of war between superpowers. Uh, we're in a protest aftermath. Um, what's the place for China and Hong Kong as the world's factory and trading grounds? Now? I think China will continue to be um, significant in manufacturing. Uh, don't ever forget that there are 1.4 billion people in China, right? A huge middle class. They are consuming every day. They need things. They need stuff. They need houses to live in. They need clothing. They need shoes to wear. They need iPhones to use. They need cars to drive, right? Somebody needs to be making them, right? Um, so manufacturing will continue to be uh, to be important in China. And China, of course, uh, Chinese government has got this uh, plan, master plan called the Made in China 2025, uh, it was uh, rolled out and then quietly sort of tucked away because it was hugely controversial. But the ambitions, the underlying ambitions remain for the Chinese government to, to, to pull China up the value chain, uh, to, to stop making, you know, cocktail umbrellas, your, 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 your shoelaces and that kind of a low-end product, you know, go up the technology chain, make complicated products, make electric vehicles, make solar panels or whatever, and innovate and create. So that will continue. And over the next few years, we will, con- we will probably see technology play a greater role in China's manufacturing. So we hopefully we'll be able to see new products coming out, new products that make use of AI, new products that make use of 5G connectivity, uh, new products that will come into the mainstream and hopefully that will help China find its place in the world of manufacturing. As for Hong Kong, Hong Kong is on the doorstep of one of the largest consumer markets in the world, right? Um, There's a geographical uh, proximity, there's a linguistic and cultural affinity, there's familiarity and there's a shared history. Uh, It will continue to be useful. And it is a place where the three pillars of uh, Hong Kong's strength will remain. Convertible currency, the rule of law based on common law system, which is compatible with, compatible with the rest of the world, and therefore it makes Hong Kong a very convenient halfway house arbitration center vis-a-vis China. And then don't, don't forget there's what we call the, the two systems within the one country. You enjoy the benefits of being part of China, uh, access to China's market, but you operate under a different system from mainland China. So for the rest of the world and for China going out, Hong Kong is the perfect halfway place. It's, the, it's a stepping stone, it's a launching pad, whatever metaphor you want to use, both going out and coming in. And again, if China opens up and if China does fully open up um, with the rest of the world, then Hong Kong will continue to become that convenient launching pad to access China, right? As long as you want to um, enjoy China's 1.4 billion um, consumers, but you are not willing to put something onshore for whatever reasons, whether it's a mandate, whether it's for political reasons or comfort or, or familiarity, Hong Kong becomes that convenient place. You can set up an office here, put your factory in China. You can do arbitration in China, in Hong Kong, um, and Hong Kong is going to be part of that Greater Bay Area. Greater Bay Area is 11 cities, combined population of 70 million people. As a standalone economy, is about the size of South Korea. And it is within an hour's drive from Hong Kong. So when the Greater Bay Area opens up, this is going to be a new experiment of China's economic reforms. China has uh, done a lot in the last 40 years uh, since um, 1978. Um, since joining the WTO, but its pace of opening up is still in tiny baby steps, right? The, com- the, the currency is still non-convertible. Its uh, legal system is still different from the rest of the world. But the Greater Bay Area, the size of South Korea's economy, is going to be a different experiment altogether. 
Uh, right now, if you want to go from Hong Kong to Macau to somewhere in the Greater Bay Area, there are three different sets of rules. There are three currencies to use, um, and you drive on different sides of the road <laughs> going to the same area. If they can figure this out, if the Greater Bay Area can figure this out, then the rest of China wouldn't be a problem, right? Because that is the experiment. That is the experiment of how um, nine cities in mainland China integrate with Hong Kong, integrate with Macau into one system, into that one country, one system. And hopefully that system is going to be a system that is better for all, uh, more convenient for livelihoods, more opportunities, um, etc. I'm glad you brought up um, GBA in Greater Bay Area. Uh, we've had a, n a number of questions. Um, interesting, a lot of questions have uh, referred to the fact that I think GBA will definitely help uh, mainland China as a whole, but there's a lot of interest to how GBA will actually help Hong Kong specifically. So looking at it from the other way. Well, think of it this way. Right? You, you're running a business, right? Uh, before the GBA, without the GBA, with closed borders or whatever, you are opening a shop, you are selling to 7.5 million people. With the GBA, you now have a potential market size of 70 million people, right? That, and if, if all, and, and this is a big if, right? If the different rules, the different currencies can all be unified, if all the red tape between Hong Kong and Zhuhai and Macau and Jiangmen can be erased, if you can sell as easily to Jiangmen as it is from Causeway Bay to Yunlong, then you are you have a market size 70 million people, the size of South Korea. Now, if you are a shopkeeper, right? Wouldn't you, you're running a business in Hong Kong, wouldn't you like that? Ten times that market size, uh, huge um, consumption potential, huge number of, uh, of of customers. I mean, people around other parts of the world, I think they'll 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 they'll, they'll kill to be here, right? Um, and then just returning something before uh, you brought up GBA uh, around um, uh, China and its technology um, uh, kind of uh, goals. Uh, it's clearly trying to develop its own chip technology, semiconductor uh, industry uh, rapidly. There's obviously never been greater demand uh, for, for chips. Um, is this going to be a big year in terms of its growth uh, in that kind of field? Um, can you yes. talk a little bit as to your thoughts? Well, um, semiconductors lie in the brains of everything. Uh, in this digital age, everything that we do, from your microwave to your smart car to more complicated things, they all use electronics and semiconductors. So it's highly vital. Um, China has been making integrated circuits and you know simple semiconductors for a long time, obviously. Um, and it has uh, ambitions to go up that chain um, under the Made in China 2025 Industrial Master Plan. But on the high end of semiconductors, the stuff that is used in your smartphone and the stuff that is used in you know, avionics and, and, and smart cars, that's complicated. That's hard. Um, it's a very, very hard technology. The supply chain for that is complicated. And a lot of the core technology is controlled by the rest of the world. Um, China is a net importer of this stuff. So will China want to do it? Yes, China does want to do it. Um, do they have the money and the wherewithal to, to do it? Yes, they've you know, lavished a lot of money and it's one of the high key priorities um, right up to uh, President Xi Jinping's speech uh, for China to innovate. Um, but it will take time. Again, it will take time. Um, it will take a lot of resources, which China is not short of, but it will take time to attract the right kind of talent, to set up the right kind of infrastructure to do it, and to be able to try and find a way to um, untangle the supply chain and to free up some of the technology and the key parts that are right now being kept captive in the in the uh, rest of the world. It will take time. Okay. Um, and then, Balan, you've spoken previously as to um, uh, some of the Asian countries having to uh, choose sides, uh, I think, in the, in, in, in um, uh, the case of conflict. Um, I remember uh, Rob Delaney, our U.S. bureau chief, uh, uh, when we previously ran our subscriber event about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, 
uh, said that actually there was a, a legitimate trade reason um, for Pelosi to visit Taiwan, which was to talk about semiconductors uh, with the Taiwan leadership. Um, are we potentially going to see Asia's leadership have to uh, start choosing sides as well when it comes to trade and uh, technology, other, other types of um, those types of uh, vein of... Uh, right. I mean, the, the, the U.S. have made some attempts, you know, to, to get... Uh, some of the Asian countries, they have got their new economic framework, uh, you know, and there, there have been some sign-ups, but no one is going to say, look, I, I will sign up with you and then I, I will abandon China, my biggest trading partner. Uh, no one is going to say, say that, uh, you know, uh, but the problem in Washington is that it's so polarized uh, and, and sometimes uh, the, the, the positions that people take, uh, I don't know whether they believe them or not, or, you know, that, that you know, because from, from, from Asia, when you hear some of the things that come out of Washington, that the countries, that they are so uh, indignant that countries are still playing both sides, as in, in their view. But it's not playing both sides. I'm playing for my own national interests. Uh, so we will continue to see uh, Asian countries definitely walk that tightrope. And I think they have, they have kind of mastered it as kind of baptism of fire during the Trump years and is doing mad things and they had to quickly react. Uh, we will continue to see that even countries like like Thailand, you know, uh, in name uh, uh, US non-NATO uh, non ally, but actually cl close ties with, with China. At the same time, they have managed to, to, to appease the Americans as well to maintain their strategic uh, relationship. So we'll see, this is just one example, various other countries uh, we'll have to continue to do that. Singapore currently, you know, experiencing quite an unprecedented boom, I know, and uh, inflow of Chinese money and, and, and talent. And does that mean that they now swing towards the Chinese? I don't think so. They, they continue to, to host the U.S. logistic base, an important place for the U.S. military uh, as, as it projects to the South China Sea. So Singapore is one of those places that will you know, need to get that balance right. And I think they have, they have a lot of experience in being able to do that. So I, I, I have no, no doubts that, that this will be an issue, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in, you know in, in that, that countries will, will, will continue to face this pressure. But I don't think, you know, many of these countries will, 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 will see it as a daunting challenge. They have been doing it for years now. Eugene, uh, one of our last questions. We had a prediction from one of our subscribers that um, Animoca Group, the blockchain entertainment group, will be listed and potentially replace Meta in the top 25 top global companies by market cap uh, by the end of this year. Um, I think broadly speaking, um, could you talk a little bit about uh, blockchain growth, crypto growth? Obviously, we've seen um, some fairly big news around FTX towards the end of uh, 2022. What does that have in store for us in terms of the growth uh, in the region uh, for blockchain? Whew. Um, okay, that's going to be that's a bold prediction. <laughs> um, I won't I won't address that prediction. Um, but in terms of um, blockchain technology, I think um, 2022, as you rightly uh, pointed out, was um, momentous year and it uh, brought a little bit of uh, sobriety uh, back into the marketplace. And blockchain technology has uh, various applications, obviously, cryptocurrency, NFT being two of them. Um, there was a lot of bubble in the, in the cryptocurrency part of that ecosystem, if you will. And because of what happened in FTX, the entire I guess uh, crypto world is now um, in the doldrums. And that has obviously uh, flowed on effect to the NFT market. Um, but the, the rest of the blockchain is still viable and active. And there are various uh, companies that are attempting different and still experimenting with different applications of blockchain. There's been talked about, there's been talk about how a blockchain technology can be used in logistics Right, can be used in supply chain management. Uh, blockchain technology can be used in payments. Um, all of that um, remains uh, still still in the development, and hopefully, with some of the noise and some of the heat taken out of the crypto world, um, some of the talent can 
refocus their um, their energy on developing the rest of the I think the rest of the technology that can probably be useful. Okay, brilliant. Um, last question for the two of you, because um, unfortunately we are running out of time. Uh, here in Hong Kong, when might we be able to uh, say goodbye to our face masks? We're good. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all maskless at the moment. Um, it's interesting. I was in Bangkok recently where I think uh, there is no mask mandate, but everyone continues to wear masks. So uh, it may, I guess it may not be a decision of when, but whether people actually feel comfortable. Um, but I don't know what you, what you believe. I, I think it should be a, a matter of personal preference and responsibility. Uh, I mean, it is not, I've also been traveling in Southeast Asia. Most of these countries don't have the mask mandate anymore. You're not mandated by the government to wear it outdoors or indoors. Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, what have you, you know, no mask mandate. But at the same time, uh, same time I think uh, we should not be flippant about it. Uh, I, I, I still worry a lot about long, long COVID, which has been, you know, uh, uh, push the sidelines. People are not really talking about it, but it, it is an issue. And I think there are studies coming that show that it is, you know, it is, it is not a hoax as some people had, had claimed it was. You know, the, 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 the symptoms are real. And uh, uh, we should continue to, act, to, to, to uh, have the personal responsibility that if you are ill uh, or, you know, we, we feel that we are at risk, we should be, we should be masking. But I think uh, the time has come for the mandate to go. Government should not be mandating people to wear a mask. You know, this is this. It should be down to the individual. Yeah. I don't mind a mask, yeah. to be honest. Um, I haven't caught COVID, and I haven't caught a cold in three years. <laughs> um, so I, I personally don't mind a mask. But what worries me is the um, amount of pollution, the uh, billions of masks that we are leaving. Yes. yes. Um, how to how to get rid of them? How to deal with them? That is that is a problem that uh, we haven't discussed. We haven't. Many, not many people have thought about. Okay. Thank you both. Um, on that note, unfortunately, um, our time together today has run out, uh, and this will mark the close of today's subscriber event. But fear not, because there is plenty more insightful coverage, analysis, and opinion for our readers on scmp.com. Uh, just before I do wrap, uh, I did want to mention uh, we are going to have some incoming two sessions coverage. Uh, this will provide reporting and analysis of China's annual parliamentary meetings, where the two main political bodies of China reveal plans for policies involving economy, trade, military, diplomacy, the environment, and much more. Uh, readers can expect a very rich wave of editorial content around this topic, as well as a refresh of China's Power Players, our interactive multimedia piece, exclusively available to our annual and biannual subscribers. Finally, please do take the time to let us know what you thought of today's subscriber event. You can scan the QR code on screen now, as well as looking out for the survey email in your inbox. Your feedback ensures our events continue to be as valuable to you as we can make them. With that said, on behalf of myself, Eugene Bavan and everyone at SCMP, thank you very much for your support and we will see you next time.